As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. From Fox 4, Kansas City, this is the Crazeology Podcast. To really understand the blues, you should know its history. It comes directly from the slave fields of the South, and it's music of an oppressed people and culture. There's so many legends and backstories about who was the actual first blues musician, but I feel most would agree that the legend of Robert Johnson is what led to the modernization of the genre. Johnson was born into a deeply segregated Mississippi in 1911. By the time he was a teen, the Delta blues was becoming more popular, but Johnson was known as a notoriously bad guitar player. Around 1929, Johnson left Robbinsville, Mississippi. When he returned in 1932, to many people's surprise, he came back a master of the guitar doing some things never heard before. This is how the rumor started that Johnson went to a local crossroads and made a deal with the devil to acquire his signature style. Johnson began traveling across some of the U.S. and his legends continued to grow. But it all ended abruptly when he died in 1938 at the age of 27. All we're left with was 29 songs of some of the most unique music of the era. It was his music that inspired great bands musicians like Eric Clapton, Mick Jagger, Robert Plant, Bob Dylan, and others. It was Johnson's music that still inspires musicians today, and it's the basis for the modern blues, like my guest today, J.D. Simo. Before we get to our conversation, let's check out All I Got Is You by J.D. Simo.
JD, I think the first thing that I wanted to ask you about is um, improvisation. Mm-hmm. And obviously your style of rock blues, you use a lot of it. How do you, what are you thinking of when you're, when you're up on stage and when you're trying to go into a solo, are you thinking about finger placement? Are you thinking about notes? Are you singing melodies in your head? I'm trying not to think about anything really. I know it's kind of a, uh, might seem kind of like a throwaway kind of an answer, but really I'm trying not to think about anything because when, um, when it's the best is when there's no, preconceived notion of what it should be there's nights where like literally when you're when you're free enough that you do something really radical like I'm trying to think of instances where like I remember times where Adam who plays drums in the band, you know, like he'll reach behind him and like grab the fan to keep him cool. And like, he'll start playing that or something. Those are the nights that actually end up becoming really special. And there's something about the not being worried about looking foolish or something comes into play. Um, But yeah, no, honestly, it's trying not to not, not have any thought. So for um, someone who's never really understood or has ever tried to improvise on an instrument, mm-hmm. how do you know you're in the right place, uh, hand placement-wise, if you're not consciously thinking about it? Um, well, I guess you don't, um, really. Um, you know, I, I sort. I guess I would reference... Miles used to talk about, um, there's a really good book called Miles on Miles, and it's only quotes of him, Miles Davis, of course. Um, And he would talk about that, you know, the bandstand is not where you practice. The bandstand is where you make music. But when you're not on stage, you practice a lot so that you have, so that you know where you're supposed to go, you know what is correct or not correct, so that then when you're actually making music, you're not thinking or you're, you you condition yourself when you're not in a music-making environment so that when you're in a music-making environment, you allow the other element to, to take over. And so I guess that's the best I can sort of correlate between the two. Um, and, you know, I do think that most people, they're not, they don't trust themselves enough to, to truly let go and, and, and let it become something because they're afraid of looking foolish and you can't, you, you, you can't be afraid of that because you, you are invariably, you know, um, and I, I think that that's when it's the best, you know. I also wanted to talk to you a little bit more about Miles Davis and because he's one of my favorite artists as well Um, his style of jazz is just so much earlier than really the kind of sound of uh, of blues and stuff that you're playing you know a couple decades later is more of when uh, that started becoming a little more prominent 
your style with Grateful Dead and and um, and BB uh, King and some of these other artists. What do you take away from Miles and his style that you put into your own music? Well, his Bitches Brew era is a huge, huge, huge influence on me um, when he was mixing psychedelic music with his own. And, um, well, I mean, I shouldn't say with his own. I mean, he kind of created his own style again, and that's a huge influence. Um, the Bitches Brewer, when he was working with Jack Dejanet and um, and uh, uh, Chick Corea and uh, Ayerto, the brilliant percussionist uh, from Africa. Um, so that element happens a lot in the course of an evening of our music um where it's very reckless but it's it's very but it's with but it's like embracing fuzz tones and uh feedback and um things like that um but you know all you know his early you know miles's earlier stuff too is 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 very influential but i would say that like in particular what miles was doing in the in the late 60s and early 70s um, when he was kind of inventing what became fusion which is something i abhor i hate fusion music but um generally um but but i love uh the bitches brew era of his of his career and i want to um kind of i guess what plays into that a little bit is when you were saying that the um them experimenting with a lot of electric, a lot of harder sounding effects, a lot of different sounds just rather than the traditional clean jazz. Um, and you said in one interview that I read that um, you have to live some sort of life to really understand blues. And I guess that would kind of transcend into the stuff that Miles did with that. What is kind of that life that you think that people who really get it have have lived um i think just in general i think probably what i was referring to there is i just think that um life experience translates into always translates into better art you know whether the art is good or bad is completely irrelevant to the thing but it's just if you haven't um lived a life experience meaning ex experienced obviously good times and bad but relationships uh getting to see lots of different environments experience lots of different environments you know it's always going to make what it is that you do better because that's what informs your i think your subconscious into making better art um, in particular, it's really, really hard to hear someone maybe try and evoke something about pain and it not be believable, you know, because in the end it's, 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 it's about trying to convey something that is your story not something that is a made up story or a story that maybe you are trying to pull off on people. You know, it's, it's about being truthful. So 
you know, that's kind of what I mean there. Um, and uh, with, with 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 blues as an idiom, I mean the the art the art of that genre in particular has gotten pretty ruined in the last many decades, um, and it's the integrity of it. I mean, and um, you know, in particular, I mean, it's just you know whatever it is that you have in your story to convey. It's a you know I I advocate about just being truthful about it and trying to convey something rather than trying to put something on well we got a little bit of a sample of your uh your life experiences with your first solo album uh, off at 11 um it's been about a year march of uh, march of 2019 that it came out um what did you think about it then and what do you think about it now that it's been this amount of time you've been touring with these songs and playing these songs and I mean, I, I'm very happy with it. It it was it was what I wanted to say at that particular moment, but uh, but I'm already completely past it. And I mean, I actually just two days ago, right before this tour started, finished my next record, which is nothing like off at eleven. So I'm I'm already past it. You know, is there? Is there uh, so what what would be the uh, what is that next step on this new record? It's very experimental. Um, I, it's 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 hard to even say at this point, but it's very it's 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 very twisted, you know. It's it's me trying to, like, off at eleven is is very much me presenting, um, is me presenting things within the genre in a probably an expected way, and I didn't want to do anything like that again. I wanted to experiment with uh, using electronic elements and um, I wanted to experiment with uh, using lots of different loops and uh, different instruments and you know I don't know it's hard to explain but it's it's very um, um, it's very twisted (laughs) I like that um So when you're now that you're playing live uh, more and using probably some of the stuff off off eleven and some of the mm-hmm. new stuff, mm-hmm. um, are you are you starting to see that the the fans are changing with it, or do you think that people are coming with you on this journey and and following you? Well, because I'm not at a a very high level of success, it's still a uh, Every time I play, it's a little bit more than it was the time before. So it's actually really easy for me at this point to continue to change because I don't have a really huge, sizable audience that loves me for one specific thing. So it actually is very freeing because people, like last night was the first night of this tour, and evidently the majority of the people that filled the place had never seen me before. So they had like a, they didn't necessarily, they had a notion of what they might be coming to see, but they didn't really have an expectation. So everything I did, you know, like 
I don't know if that makes sense, you know, yeah. but it's actually really, it's really hip because it allows me to continue to try and stretch and, you know, cause when you have, when you have something, one thing that's really successful, then it's really difficult then to continue to change. Um, but I like changing, so I don't know. I'll probably do it regardless. <laughs> um, I want to go back and let's talk about the title track of Off at Eleven. Sure. Um, what was kind of your idea and the concept behind it? And and is it exactly the way you wanted it to turn out? Yeah, I mean, it turned out that the the whole record and that's that song's indicative of it. Like it was very minimal. Um, you know, just a handful of microphones and a tape machine and about trying to get a raw performance that's very unadulterated. And um, the concept behind that one is is just, you know, there's a there's an element of, of, of free form, of free jazz in that, in that song that uh, um, can be really long or can be short. And so, you know, that with a head, you know, with a, with a section that happens to bring us in and out. And, um, no, I mean, we, you know, we just set up and got a, got a good performance of it that day, you know, but it's a, that, that's that, like many other songs is performed radically different day to day. So like that's one performance and I haven't really listened to it since it was mixed, you know, so I'm sure that it's very different than I remember. <laughs> It, it's one of the few songs on the album that is instrumental. Mm-hmm. Did you did you keep some instrumental songs on the album because, like you said earlier, that was kind of what you thought people would expect of you as a blues artist, or was there something special about this off at no, eleven? I just I just always really dug that tune, and I, it had been kind of in and out of my repertoire for quite a while, and so. It was nice to finally give it a home, you know. That n- nothing really more than that, you know. Um, and as far as like uh, expectations, I mean, I just um, those those other the other tunes on the record um, was um, yeah. I mean, you know, it was it it was what felt right to me at the time, you know.
You're originally from Chicago or Chicago area. Mm-hmm. Is it actual Chicago? Yeah, I was okay. born and raised on oh, nice. the north side and uh, corner of Armitage and Halstead. There's a little apartment building there and still there. And there was a bar, uh, still is a bar in the ground floor of it, and that was my dad's place. Cool. And I grew up, we grew up there. Was being in Chicago and Chicago blues being such a big thing one of the main reasons why you got into the genre in the first place? Um, that's a good question, actually. Um, I think that it made it easier because I had access to... I was in love when I was a little boy with the with the public library. I had an amazing public library in that neighborhood, okay? And they had every record that had ever been made. And it was amazing because I could go and I could access anything and everything. So it was it was an incredible gift that had I grown up in like Des Moines, Iowa, I wouldn't have had, you know. So I had access to anything and everything and that in, uh, had a gigantic impact. And I'm sure that my love of like black American music, whether it be, you know, chess or the Cobra stuff from the west side of Chicago that I really love to people like Magic Sam and Otis Rush and stuff like that. Um, or uh, Hound Dog Taylor, um, all that stuff that was that was native to Chicago. Um, but, you know, the stuff from Stax down in Memphis, um, I was hugely, hugely influenced by all that and am. Um, and jazz and, and Bob Dylan and the Beatles, all that stuff. So, I mean, it's... But, yeah, I, I, I think had I grown up somewhere else, I wouldn't have had... I certainly wouldn't have had the access that I had growing up where I did, you know. And my awareness... But it's funny because my awareness, you know, and I think it's the same for everyone, like, where you're from is where you're from. You don't realize until you're older what that really means. So as far as recognizing that I lived in Chicago where there's all of this history, I was sort of aware of it, but sort of oblivious to it at the same time. So it's like I remember making my mother drive me down to the south side to find the original chess studio when it was a boarded up building it literally was boarded up i do remember doing that because i sort of correlated like oh wait this was you know like this this muddy waters record was made here and it would be cool to see where it was made Mm -hmm. but at the same time growing up in um a huge city like that and still like you know being an early millennial, meaning that, like, you know, I was kind of formed between 1990 and 1996 or seven. So, like, living in Chicago, we're listening to XRT there. I was just as influenced by Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Alice in Chains. And, uh, you know, like, it was all kind of jumbled up together, you know. Um, and the, the, again, like might not have been the case had I grown up somewhere else. So it was just a wonderful place to grow up and have exposure to just tons of music. 
is this around the same time that you started playing as well? Yeah, I got a guitar in 1990 when I was four. So, so yeah, so like it's just perfect because like all of that was happening, and I was very aware of it and very into it, while at the same time being obsessed with the Beatles and being obsessed with. Um, I'm just trying to think like early, early. Yeah, I mean, it was Stax music, Booker T and the MGs and Sam and Dave and stuff and and uh, Muddy Waters and Chuck Berry and and uh, and Nirvana and Sonic Youth and, <laughs> you know, all that. So clearly your parents were very supportive of you when you were younger playing mm-hmm. music. When it kind of got to that point of we're getting ready to finish high school was the same which I didn't I actually dropped out of high school when I was 15 what was to go play music well I mean I started playing like in bars and stuff on the weekend when I was like eight nine years old I mean just craziness and um so by the time you know you fast forward like you know I'm a freshman in high school sophomore I I had been gigging for years and was making decent money and I just was I just could care less about school so i yeah you know the uh i didn't even make it through my first semester in my sophomore year i dropped out and went on tour so what did your parents kind of say at that time eh, it was a mixed bag <laughs> it was a mixed bag <laughs> did they overall though did they want you to continue to pursue education or of course they, yeah. did they see your talent and know that you could do something um um, they they wanted me to finish school. <laughs> so then, how come? I mean, obviously, you said you weren't interested in it, but I mean, that's it feels like a big kind of like separation. That if they wanted you to stay, and you're like, no, I'm going to do it anyway. Oh sure, absolutely. Um, did that now change I, your family dynamic at all? Absolutely, or absolutely. Yeah, you know, I essentially had to become an adult at that moment. <laughs> I mean, I guess I'm curious about uh, some of those life experiences then that you experienced where most kids wouldn't have been in them. Uh, did, you, did you think that time was frightening at all, or was it just exciting to be out and play music? You're, I was too young to, to, to I, was, I was too young and stupid to, to, to know any, to, to think it through, really. Um, I was dead set on doing what it is that I wanted to do and didn't really care. And, um, you know, I mean, I have a young daughter now myself, so it's like, you know, the ramifications of the situation. I just thank God that in the end, I didn't get off into drugs. I didn't get off into alcoholism. I didn't, uh, you know, get a girl pregnant or, you know, all of the millions of things that could have happened. I'm just grateful that I got out and just did exactly what I said I wanted to do, which was get to work. And, um, and that's what I did. So in that regard, I'm grateful, but you know, do as I say, not as I do kids, (laughs) Uh, not recommended, (laughs) but there's a lot of humility that came with it. There's a lot of humility. I continue to carry with me to this day because I certainly know what it's like to have nothing. (laughs) Did you did you find it hard to have, you know, because a lot of people, especially when they're younger, they're imagining the days of 
playing rock shows and really getting on stage stage in Wayland. Did you find it hard to find other musicians that, that could continually for a long cor- period of time follow you? Yeah, because well, I can answer that question a lot of different ways. Yes, in the end, yes, it was very difficult because I didn't grow up with with other with other musicians. I I didn't nobody that I grew up with was into it. They were all into sports. So I didn't have anybody in my peer group that I could relate to and that I could connect with. I always had to work with older people, which is a mixed bag because on one hand you're, you have an awesome opportunity to learn. But on the other hand, it's like you're playing with somebody's dad, you know, which is not cool. So, um, so it was kind of, it was a mixed bag. It wasn't until I finally moved to Nashville when I was 20 did I finally meet people that were my age group that were into what I was into and also had like similar backgrounds that had like been working their whole life. And, and that was incredibly, incredibly um, freeing and uh, inspiring. It was like, great, finally. I can find some folks to make some racket with. What did your friends from Chicago kind of think when this part of your life was starting to change? Um, Were they supportive? Yeah, but I mean, I don't really... uh, um, Any friends that I had, I was pretty careless and and, and, and was always about the next thing so i didn't only one relationship really in my life there's this girl that i grew up with um that i'm still really close with um that i've remained friends with over the years really none of the kids that i that i grew up with i really stayed in contact with i kind of went off into my own world um and um yeah so there's only really one relationship that's maintained for the last 25 years, you know. The rest of them just kind of meh. I was off because I was always a really weird kid. I was. I was just a weird kid. I was. I was the weirdo. You were the weirdo. Mm-hmm. I'm curious what you think the weirdo means. Uh, the weirdo, in my case, meaning that I was the contrarian. I was, you know they were you know put it this way like you know it's like they were all into sports and and i like sports too but they were they were all off into sports and listening to uh (laughs) i remember when dookie came out and they loved it they just absolutely like everybody was all and i thought it was complete shit and i was like i'm sorry like i think pearl jam and and uh, Nirvana are amazing and sort of revolutionary in certain ways. And and uh, Rage Against the Machine, you know, uh, I was like, the, I think these things are brilliant. And I think that is absolute horseshit. And that's what you guys dig. So that's fine. <laughs> so... That's fair. That's I the mean, juxtaposition. Yeah, right. Everyone, you know, has their own. They liked Guns and Roses, and I liked the Beatles. You know? Right. Um, I wanted to get back into um, 
one of your other songs, uh, except mm-hmm. you decided to make a 16-minute, 48-second-long <laughs> track. I didn't decide. I just did it. Well, then... Ex- what are some of the what were some of the challenges of being able to put together a track that's this long and oh there's and nothing that's the thing I ju- you just do it you just play it and that's it there's no challenge or when you're doing the recording process then where what when was the okay we actually need to stop and go back to the head you don't decide it just happens seriously like you don't um Or to change forms, like to go from the changing forms just happens. It just happens. There's a you just listen, and somebody will sort of start to do it, and then you all go together. And it can be any of us. Um, and as far as going back to the head, um, I should say there. I mean, there is a signal, but it's but it's not anything that's too overt it's like when it feels like the 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 whole piece is climaxed then it's time to go back um and it's something that sometimes is better than others i mean that's the thing it's just it's never the same so i mean that's just one performance of it that was particularly inspired you know when you're trying to record things like that it's very important that you kind of like play it once or something like you don't you don't labor over those. You let them be what they're going to be in the space. And it's like, if you don't like the performance and you should do it another day or change something or, you know, come back to it hours later or something like it, because it's not something that's going to get better. You know, it kind of has to just kind of come out of the ether and you get lucky. <laughs> so when you're playing it live, since the album's been out, you said there's not a ton of people that um, or your your base is continually growing from somebody who's heard it off the album and then compared to somebody who and then they go to the show and they hear you play it. Has anyone approached you about the the differences or they thought that it was going to be this 16 minute track or was everybody no. always? No, they're always game and they're always you know the people that continually like we have a lot of we have we have like this um there's like all these kind of conglomerates of people that'll come to like multiple shows on a tour and it's like what they're expecting is it for it to be completely different every night and that's a wonderful thing to get from from fans because that's the goal is to try and make every night different as different as it can be. And so that's wonderful that that's come across to these factions. And we, and we know these people, we recognize them because they, they, you know, there's a a group of people that were there last night that I know are coming tonight and coming tomorrow. And that's, it's awesome when we see those people and recognize those people because it's, it's like, yeah, all right, cool. You know, try and give them, it's like, oh, okay, what did we do last night? Okay, let's try not to do any of that because they were there last night. Right. That's wonderful. It's a wonderful feeling. I want to ask you about one more song, um, Temptation. Mm-hmm. And why did you decide to include this one? Because uh, it's one of your the few ballads that you kind of included. Mm-hmm. Um, how come you decided that this would be one that you wanted in there? I really like the feel of it, and I I like the spookiness of it. Um and um 
it's a, again a song that had been kind of kicking around in the rep, in our repertoire for a while, and I was glad to finally find a home for it. And um, it's also Adam, the drummer's um, favorite. He loves this, he, for whatever reason he loves that song. So it's like any and any time like during a show that I I call it, he's always like yes. So it's like you know if if he and I like argued about lunch that day, I know all I have to do is call temptation that night and all will be forgiven (laughs) (laughs) do you do you have uh do you guys get together and put your set list together before or do you just call live on stage no i just call them i don't i don't i i i mean we'll usually discuss what the first song or two will be um because usually you want to hit those relatively quick um but no the rest of it i just call out um i've tried to write set lists and it just doesn't work for me because nine times out of ten, I end up wanting to change it when it's I'm like staring at it on the ground, and I'm like, man, I really don't like that. I don't know what that is. I think it's just part of my personality. <laughs> Are you getting that feeling? Yeah. <laughs> Do you? Uh... I cannot be confined. <laughs> I don't like being confined. What What goes into the decision making process then of what song is it? Are you looking at the crowd and seeing how they react to the last song, or is it something where, right when it ends, you're like, "Oh, would be it'd be sweet to go into this other one." It's it, yeah, I mean, it's 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 both. Um, it's gauging what I think the audience is going to want next. Meaning, um, is the energy high? Is the energy low? Are they seeming exhausted? A lot of times, what it ends up being is like because there's a lot of information. <laughs> on a, any given night there's a lot of information that we're throwing at the audience so sometimes they need a break like sometimes it's like i can tell that they're like we're only a half hour in and they it's like they're like fuck you know and they're they it's like okay let's like do something chill for a minute and give them give them a minute um because it can be fairly intense so it's it's both it's 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 feeling where i think it should go next you know <laughs> Thank you. 
you're enjoying this episode of Crazeology, make sure to click subscribe to keep up with new content. You can find previous episodes at fox4kc.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, let's get back to my conversation with rock blues musician J.D. Simo. You said in an interview with Billboard that your album was originally your concept was it to be more of a 50s kind of blues rock uh, style. And then it was actually a conversation with Grateful Dead co-founder uh, Phil Lesh um, that kind of convinced you to, to, to also bring in some psychedelic elements and that kind of stuff. Um, and you describe it as playing outer space music. What do you what lines do you draw between like a visual experience of outer space and then the sound of 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 improvisation and 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 the music that you you're creating there? Um, that's a really good question. I I don't hmm. I don't really uh, to me the 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 correlation of the of the imagery, if you will, is just the vastness. It's just, it can be anything and everything. It it doesn't have to be confined by any necessary rhythm, tempo, key. You know, it's free and open. And again, when you put in a lot of time where you are very familiar with your instrument, you're very proficient, when you allow yourself to be completely free, it's just amazing what can happen. And um, working with Phil has been a huge thrill, <laughs> as you can imagine, for many, many reasons. Absolutely. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, as far as the my concept, you know, I kind of had in my head of wanting to do something super traditional, um, 50s style and uh he was very helpful in kind of me realizing that see i've always had this problem myself that um there's all these different things that i really really like and they're not necessarily all you know uh congruent with one another and i always feel like i have to pick one of them and service that and only am I now starting to realize that that's not necessarily true. <clears throat> that you, um, that if you're working with the right people that can kind of help you make things cohesive, you can you can do all of it and be as creative as you can possibly be and not have to worry about that. And so going back to before I made that record off at 11, I was very much kind of in that mindset of feeling like I had to pick something and then service that. And Phil was kind of the first step in being like, well, no, you don't have to do that. You can, you can do whatever you want, you know? And that's, it, it may seem very simple and it is, but to a person with a neuroses like me, it's actually pretty profound. <laughs> Since that was kind of your original concept of that, 50s sound and then you after already starting to put together the album mm -hmm. um, 
kind of changed a little bit in that. What is more you? Is it more of that 50 sound or is or is this sound that we're hearing the psychedelic stuff? No, that's you? what I'm saying is that it's 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 actually it's the amalgam of all of it because it all is a part of me. That's the thing. It's it's um I I really like all of that, you know. And I like psychedelic music. I like um you know, I like all types of things that one might not think. <laughs> You know, so um, so no, I mean it's 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 uh, yeah, it's all me. <laughs> I read in another interview that you have done some shows where it's just you and an electric guitar on stage. Mm -hmm. Outside of just having other people to play off of, what is kind of different from a show like that from a show like in your tour where you're you got drums and bass with you? Um, it's so intimate, um, almost terrifying. Um, but there's a there's a special thing that can only happen when you're alone with an audience. And it's something that I didn't really realize until I went and did it a, a few times. And I've done it a bunch now. And um, when you make a connection with an audience and you don't have all of that stuff around you, all of the, the volume and all of the... It's just you. There's a, there's a dynamic element that can't exist when there's other people on stage. Um, even if you go down to whisper quiet with a band, there's still something that happens when it's just you and the audience dynamically that is something that's really special and it's really intoxicating. Um, and I really... Um, I was always so not into wanting to do that and uh, my dear friend Tommy Manuel talked me into doing it with him, and, and I, I'm so glad that I did because it was really, it's been really enlightening. And uh, bless you. And uh, it was, uh, it's been, every time that I've done it, I've walked away feeling very energized. Um, I don't want to do it all the time, but it's nice to do a couple of times a year because it's actually really a, a beautiful kind of creativity uh, recharge because it's, I mean, there's nothing freer than just being by yourself. I mean, it's just, it can go any, literally can go anywhere you want. <laughs> it's beautiful. Do you think the audience still has the same amount of energy from a full band show to a solo show? That's a good question, too. No, I don't think so. Um, it's different. It's 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 not really comparable because it's very it's two different things. I mean, there is a lot of there is energy, and you can you can instill a lot of intensity still in that environment, but it's just different. That's all. With those kinds of shows, do you? Do you change your style of playing because you have to kind of fill both a rhythm and lead part at the same time, or you just kind of do your own thing and just leave it as is? There are some times where I bend it 
slightly, but actually what I found for myself is that if I don't change anything, it's actually really cool. Like I kind of, when I do the solo thing, I kind of act as if I'm still playing with the band. And I don't know why it works well, but it actually works really well. Because um, initially when I was going to do it the first time, I was terrified. And uh, I tried a bunch of different ways to try and make it work. And then it kind of dawned on me, like, well, what if I just, you know, which actually was inspired more so by there was a guy in the 40s that I love a lot named Lonnie Johnson, who was a big influence on a lot of people I love and he would do that he would go up and play there's really good footage of him um in the 50s um you know singing and playing but he, he you know it's as if he you just took him out of a band and put him in front of an audience with a microphone and I was like well that's really interesting maybe I should try that and so I tried it and it worked really well so it's not an it's it's not an original idea. I took it from someone, but yeah. do you still do full effects and everything when you play a solution? No, like no, I don't. No, I don't. That's the only thing that that I think gets cheesy. Um, I think you know, in that environment, keeping it pure um, works best, at least for me. You know, I guess what what do you think would makes it cheesy though in in that aspect? Um, if it's something that you use with full band, but you're you're when you're solo, you're like I I can't I just can't. Well, it's just the context of it. Yeah, I mean, it's like when you're when I'm playing with the band, it's like if I want to radically shift the way something sounds and all that, it's in context to being reacted to. Whereas more so when I'm playing alone, it's about using the dynamics to have a um, a scene change. Whereas if I'm, I don't know, I just feel like when I'm like using effects or something like that solo, it just seems out of context and wrong, like wrong, bad, like not wrong. Cause a lot of times wrong is good, <laughs> you know, but it's just bad. Just, uh, just like what it, you know, it, it, jarring out of the musicality of the moment as opposed to a scene change. You know. uh, let's go back and talk about one of the other songs on your album. Um, I got "Love If You Want It." Mm-hmm. Um, this is a this one actually has lyrics. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> what do you want people to take away from the lyrics of this song? Because I feel like with the blues, there's not as much attention on what the singers sing are saying because it's call and repeat a lot of times and, mm-hmm. and that traditional style. Um, but what, what, what did you want people to take away with, um, with the lyrics of this song? Uh, well, I mean, it's an old Slim Harpo song from the forties and I, uh, I just want them to shake their butt <laughs> and have some fun <laughs> on this one. Um, it's a tune that I've always really loved. Um, there's a record label down in, in Louisiana. There was at least called Excello, which I loved a lot. And all their records were very, um, for their time, they were very murky and eerie sounding. They were, they were 
they always sounded like they were made in a haunted house. And they had Slim Harpo, they had a guy named Lightning Slim, and they had um, a guy named Lazy Lester. Those were their main artists. And uh, hugely influential on, um, especially like the Fabulous Thunderbirds and some stuff that came out in the 70s and 80s. But um, I've just always loved Slim a lot, and it's one. this is one of my favorite tunes of his. And uh, ironically, you know, I always say that, um, you know, a hit record for those guys back in those days meant that, you know, maybe 50 or 60 jukeboxes bought a copy of a record. Mm -hmm. And, like, that was a hit. Like, that was a regional hit, you know. It's a very different mindset than we live in today. There's something very... Um, working class about it that I like you know so that's the thing I, I just really wanted to do I just love I love Slim Harpo a lot and um, it's my favorite tune of his really so I guess for people who may not be 100% in the blues jazz culture um, can you kind of explain the idea behind having other people's songs on your album or on using other people's songs on your album yeah, I mean, the there's an element of um, the the repertoire is, like, passed down. Like, a lot of songs, like, started as chants, if you will. Like, there's a lot of history of, you know, when, when these people were slaves, there's rhythms and there's call and response things that, were used in the fields and then they were some of them were developed and later on picked up and turned into songs and there's a uh, a generational kind of just like folk music i mean it's it's folk music really it's 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 um the recycling of certain motifs and ideas from generation to generation to 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 uh hopefully comment on the human condition that hopefully is evolving, which is high, which is highly arguable, <laughs> and um, and so it's very common, you know, to to do that in the idiom, and you know, I mean, there's some people are better at it than others, but you know, there's people that, um, I mean, obviously, a lot of the rock groups did it in the seventy in the sixties and seventies. You know, the Rolling Stones and and um, uh, um, Cream and stuff like that. You know, Grateful Dead too. Um, but uh, you know, people like Ry Cooter are really great at it about digging up songs that are kind of ancient and reinterpreting them a different way. Um, and so, you know. There's a couple of tunes, you know, Got Love If You Wanted is one of them on, on my record that, um, you know, it was a song from the late 40s that I really love and I just sort of interpreted in a psychedelic way, you know.
it for this episode of crazeology today's episode was produced by myself kendall swank with production assistance and editing done by jacob orlowski you can find more episodes at box4kc.com or wherever you get your podcasts the winter in kansas city has been a little colder but stay tuned as we get more consistent releases coming out once bands are back on the road until next time this is accept by jd simo
Stay. 